Sometimes, movies are bullets. They fire straight and true, driven by a main character's overwhelming need. A tragic flaw sends them hurtling to great heights. And what goes up must come down. But sometimes, movies are a long joke for a single punchline. A moment of clarity, of anagnorosis, where the protagonist and the audience suddenly get what it's all about. You're not sure whether you should laugh or cry. The two adaptations of Nightmare Alley, first in 1947 by Edmund Golding, and more recently in 2021 by Guillermo del Toro, are prime examples of each of these approaches. Even though they draw on the same source material, a novel written by William Lindsay Gresham in 1946, and follow the same basic beats and characters, they draw separate conclusions about who their main character is. Adaptation is a tricky beast. On the one hand, you have a pretty schematic set of plans for the story that you're telling. On the surface, it seems like the most straightforward thing, but in translating from one medium to the other, a million choices must be made. Material added, removed, condensed, shifted, changed, all in service of what the new version's author sees as the best way to reveal the core truth of the text. Adaptation gives proof to the fact that art is subjective and truly lies in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. I'd like to say that if you're seeing me, you're having the worst day of your life. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. There's this story against mine, but of course I told my story better. Hello and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films and then talk about them. I am one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, and I'm joined tonight by my friend, Fred Pelzer. And tonight we'll be discussing both the 1947 and the 2021 adaptations of Nightmare Alley. At the end, we'll talk about how they differ or stay the same. Fred, do you want to get us started by kicking off the 1947 version? You're not a regular MD, are you? Of course not. But anything my patients reveal to me is as sacred as though it were given under the seal of the confessional. Is that clear? All right, all right. You don't have to get on a soapbox. I'm going to be strictly on the level about this whole thing myself. Will you get out of here? I should have known you were that kind Uh-oh. of a... It takes one to catch one. Listen to me. I'm no good. I never pretended to be. But I love you. I'm a hustler. I've always been one. But I love you. I may be the thief of the world, but with you I've always been on the level. The original Nightmare Alley was directed by Edmund Golding, written by Jules Firthman, and based on the novel of the same name by William Lindsay Gresham. It follows a handsome carney played by Tyrone Power, who learns mentalism and uses it to con his way to wealth and fortune before his inevitable downfall. It also stars Joan Blundell, Colleen Gray, and Helen Walker as a mix of predator and prey circling around Power. All right, so Tristan, to kick it off, let's talk about our context for Nightmare Alley, for Edmund Golding, and for Tyrone Power, who is a big creative force behind this movie. So what, what was your relation to, to these creative forces in this movie? Uh, truthfully, I came to this version of Nightmare Alley, thanks to the uh, 2021 version that Del Toro was 
was putting out, which is what prompted uh, this entire discussion in the first place. And I didn't have, I'd not seen this. I didn't have a lot of context for it. Uh, I, I, I know Tyrone Power first from Witness for the Prosecution, which is a terrific Billy Wilder film. Yes. Uh, he's, he's wonderful. I've forgotten I'd seen him in that. He is great in that. Yeah, that um, I, I, I would not mind having that come up in our discussion at, at some point. I think we've got a trial season planned down the road, and I think that would be a prime candidate for that season. Fantastic. And I would also not mind a Marlena Dietrich season. Oh, uh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> All right in there, too. Um, but, uh, but actually, I've got a, an interesting connection to Tyrone Power. My, uh, my grandfather's brother back during World War II, his older brother, was an extra in, uh, in the World War II movie Crash Dive, uh, which uh, as a, he was in the Navy and as a, a soldier, he was just uh, seen on, uh, on, on deck in one of the scenes. Very nice. That's a great opportunity to bring up, actually, I mentioned Tyrone Power as a major creative force behind this, and that's because he came back from World War II having served and really wanted to be specific about what he was doing because he was doing a lot of leading man, romantic kinds of movies. And so this is coming out of World War II. This is one of his big passion projects and he kind of strong-armed the production company into making it but they didn't have any kind of faith in it and they didn't supposedly the head of the studio did not want to see his romantic leading man in this tawdry despicable bleak movie and so he buried it upon release (laughs) supposedly so the story goes and that lends a lot of a lot of context to um, just re- recontextualizing what I what I've seen now. Knowing that it uh, it it really makes it fascinating. It's interesting. As for myself, also I had not seen this previously, and and watched the 2021 version, and then watched this one to go behind the curtain a little bit. <laughs> the original plans for one of us to watch them in one order and the other was to watch it in the other order but we thought the other one was doing it the other way so we yeah, both we ended up watching the 2021 version and then the 1947 right. version but that's all right so i like i say i came into this cold i evan going sort of fresh to me obviously joan blondell very familiar face she has had so many hollywood lives mm-hmm. uh, i it's it's so impressive to me that she starts out doing some of the the really great Busby Berkeley films, uh, Gold Diggers of, of 1933 and mm-hmm. Footlight Parade, and and then passes through film noir, and and at the end of her career, she's in Greece. So it was nice. It was great seeing her in such a like fun, meaty role. But Joe, in general, I, I, the only, my little bit of context for this was I had heard of it, I think, before Del Toro's Nest was adaptation was announced definitely once it was announced i i saw it a lot and, and people discussing it as one of the bleakest and meanest of the classic studio era noirs so it has long been on my my watch list and for a long time it was just not available and then fortunately the criterion channel whom I am a proud card, little card carrying initial member of their their subscription service. They put together a Fox Noir package, which this was a part of. So I was very excited to finally get to watch it. And the timing is perfect because it was when the movie was coming out and we 
we're talking about doing this podcast. So it all, you know, it all came together beautifully. And I'm really glad I did. It definitely is a, a lean, mean little noir machine. And I'm excited for us to talk about it. I think lean and mean is a a a, a good way to sell its its virtues. Um, we we are going to get into the del Toro version later, but this um, this is a, a far more concise, pared down version. It it goes by fast, uh, and, and I don't actually I don't have the run times in front of me, but I don't actually think it's that different. Uh, it's not that much shorter. It's uh, a bit short. It's at least half an hour because the Dutch oh, one. I was thinking it was only twenty minutes or so, but the Dutch one's feels, two thirty. It feels uh, shorter. It yes, feels it is shorter. very efficient in its uh, scene work, and like you said, I think one of the things we'll talk about is how scenes that one scene in this movie will be two or three scenes in the Delta Toro one, especially in the first half when we're at the circus or the first half in the Del Toro version and the first 30 minutes when we're in this one. Right. Uh, and and I think it's interesting, and jo- Joan Blondell's a good, maybe it's just her presence, uh, but a really good example of this where I feel like she um, she's not in the movie that much, but she does leave a, a pretty substantial impact for me. Uh, and I, uh, I I think that's a, a tribute to the performance, certainly, uh, and where focus is chosen to be placed but uh, when you consider how how little of the film she actually appears in that she that she stands out so much is uh, impressive no I agree I think she's got of the three female leads she's got the meatiest role and maybe we can just kind of start here with the the three women surrounding our Stan our handsome Carney with uh, no soul (laughs) the so yeah we've got Joan Blondell as this stage magician it it it's a lot vaguer with her backstory here but she used to be a big big deal and now she's found herself here but she has in her possession this code book for a way of communicating with a helper in the audience so that unknownst to the rest of the audience they can communicate about information about the audience member or what's being held up and so that the person on stage can appear to be psychic. Uh, and this code book is, is a turning point for both, both versions of the movie. In addition to her, we've got Colleen Gray as this much more traditional ingenue role, but it is, it does at least have this sort of fun electric girl carnival twist that, that gives it a little extra texture, I thought, and, and did give it something beyond just sort of the standard she's a nice girl that you're going to lose because you're an asshole that it could otherwise have been. And then we have Helen Walker as the uh, ice cold psychotherapist who ultimately is the one who plays Stan. Uh, we didn't say it at the top, but there's going to be spoilers a lot <laughs> in this and in all of our podcasts. And maybe going forward, we'll include that as part of our introduction, but we're just saying it now, but also yeah, if you've watched, beware. If you've watched any noir movies, you can kind of see what's coming, I think, in both versions. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but just it, it certainly was not a surprise for me in either version when, when that turn at the end came. But it, it may be the um it may be that we are spoiled on the genre, but also uh this is 
a very, very telegraphed noir. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it's such a classically shaped rise and fall story in both versions. Uh, and I think it's also, for, for me, at least as a viewer of noir, I, I subscribe to April Wolf's, uh, film critic April Wolf's philosophy that it, it doesn't matter what the story is, it matters how it's told. And for me, so much of the noir is is the how, is the texture of performance and cinematography and production design and direction. All of that is the part that that brings me a lot of joy. So, so I personally didn't mind that as soon as the psychotherapist walks on and starts interacting with Stan, you're like, oh, this is this is not going to end well for our, our little our little guy here. No, that's pretty pretty evident from the get go. Um, I th- all, all all three of the women fall fall pretty neatly into the the types you you size them up as as right off the bat. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of room. Uh, there, there's no surprises there. They are they are who you assess them <laughs> to be. Right. But I think that's also what makes Joan Blondell's character the most interesting is that. Colleen Gray is the ingenue and Helen Walker is the femme fatale. And that's just where they land. But Joan Blondell is kind of outside of that dichotomy. I mean, it's essentially a variation on the Madonna whore complex of uh, many a a movie. But Blondell is very much her own woman. She's very comfortable with her sexuality. She's made some mistakes but she is trying to do right, but she's not perfect. She's she's just a little, a little bit more interesting as, as a result, I think. And no no surprise that she gets billing ahead of um, ahead of the other two women, which is which is in the 2021 version completely reversed. That's uh, true. But I think it's also reflected in the screen time in the 2021 version. Yeah, would be my instinct. Screen time, um, exactly where where Del Toro chooses to take his adaptation versus um, versus what we have from Golding. Yeah, which uh, I don't know. Is there anything else that you want to kind of talk about with these three characters and the performances? They also kind of help us uh, as we bisect the film, and we have Colleen Gray bridging the the gap between. But very much, this is a, a movie told in in two parts. Yes, uh, and that that traces the real arc which is stan uh and mm-hmm. uh and so i think let's dive in and talk about tyrone power and what he brings to this role yeah i really enjoyed his stand i found his stand to be driven and have a very clear set of objectives and he reminded me as a proto Lou Bloom from Nightcrawler. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. You know, not as nihilistic as that movie, which absolutely Hayes Code 1947, <laughs> even now a few things are. But to me, he is very much of the same stock in that he wants fame and money and power for their own sake. And is willing to do what it takes to get there. He has a little bit more of an arc than Lou. Lou doesn't really have an arc. At the start, he is a monster, and at the end, he's still a monster, whereas Stan starts off a little bit more. He wants it. He's not sure he's got quite enough to take it. Uh, And we could talk about um, 
the death of Pete and how that's played here. I read that as right, very much an accident that he's, he puts it in the box and then he accidentally takes out the wrong type of bottle. I, I, I read the same way. Uh, and Powers Stan is, uh, he's an opportunist and he makes the the best at any given point of the hand he's been dealt for sure. um, and and so he reacts accordingly from there but I, it doesn't read to me as a malicious act in right no i think so too he's because he's got that beat after where he's you know he 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 checks right because he, he goes look, back to the looks, box and he, he's, he looks confused yeah absolutely uh, but it was such it was very striking to me coming off of del toro's version to to see that but i think it also lends stan a little bit more of an arc right where he is morally gray at the start willing to cut some corners bend some rules but he wouldn't necessarily kill the guy uh and he does by accident but he like you said he makes the most of it and then by the time we reach the climax of the movie he is fully embraced his pure capitalist id do what it takes fuck everybody up on the way i guess we're going to be a r-rated uh explicit podcast we haven't really talked about it but that's what we're doing (laughs) so i mean these are movies that children shouldn't be watching so i feel okay about that 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 could be a topic though children's noir uh i'm sure i'm sure there's something we could dig into there. we're going to talk about night of the hunter at some point so that, it's, that, it's yeah. good to be in there i mean that would mess a kid up but would absolutely do that <laughs> uh but yes we are going to talk about that uh, been some, do you remember this is gonna very clearly date me and maybe you as well there was a tv show about a kid who was a member of the safety patrol and so it was a police procedural beset in middle school about this one kid just going around solving no. middle school crimes <laughs> i have never it was, it was an animated show it was part of somebody's block of programming but it definitely tapped into a lot of that that kind of stuff but in a very safe and accessible way anyway that's very very off topic at this that, point and unless you can think of a children's show that does a, a carnival noir pastiche that that could exist i suppose but probably not yeah there's probably some some lady from shanghai hall of mirrors uh it's gotta be referenced somewhere in, in some kid's show so but going back to stan right so i, I think he's he does wind up a, a very interesting arc as a result that that works well for the character as as he's just consumed by his pursuit of power and wealth for its own sake that, that was my read how about you that's such a classic uh noir anti-hero trajectory anyway that um that while it does go to a dark place it's pretty expected and i think that uh that this film and and the 2021 uh both both very much foreshadow the circular nature of his journey uh, right from the get-go. And, yeah. uh, and and so we know we know not only that he is going to fall, but we know where he's going to fall to. That's a good point that I, I hadn't really thought about, but that this one just opens with the geek, right? It opens with Stan yeah. watching the it's geek show right and asking about where they come from. And I think that's such an interesting choice too. And again, we'll get into that, that here they don't play their card until the end of where the geek comes from. 
whereas the del toro one is such a clear beat by beat setup that they which, want you to pay off and see as a callback which is why it would have been fascinating if one of us had watched this one first i know right <laughs> we botched that didn't we uh it's all right um yeah so but let's let's talk about this first time right so like, like i said i think a big part of the original's appreciation comes from its place as a particularly brutal piece of noir where there's not really much in the way of redeemable characters. Like we talked about Joan Blondell's stage magician, she's okay. And Colleen Gray is a very nice ingenue. Yeah, Colleen Colleen Gray just doesn't get enough meet to her character to uh to really rise above and then and then there's the end yeah let's, let's talk about that right i, I think that yeah. is such an interesting so i'd assumed it was a haze code thing but apparently it was a creative differences oh i i'd i'd taken that for a haze code uh amendment as well yeah, so apparently I was reading that, I don't know, this could be spin after the fact, but apparently it was more of a creative differences issue, again, coming back to the, the studio and wanting to protect their their star's image. But yes, yeah, so it, it, the ending of the 1947 version, so Stan, uh, just kind of rushing through the, the plot piece here, in case you haven't watched the movie, Stan learns how to do this mentalist act, he goes on the road, winds up in Chicago with Colleen Gray as his assistant. They've got it going pretty well, but he decides that he's going to start using his ability to read people to pretend to be able to commune with the dead and use that to take separate some suckers from their money, especially with the assistance of Helen Walker's psychotherapist who will feed him inside information about her clients so that he seems to really know what's, what's going on. And in the end, he goes after, he he uses Colleen Gray to try and swindle this gangster. It's a little vague in the both versions, I'd say, exactly just a bad guy with a lot of money. And it goes, it goes wrong. Colleen Gray breaks or the the engineer breaks and flees Tyrone has to go on the run. He goes back to the psychotherapist to get his money. And it turns out that she's been robbing him of his money and is pretending that he is one of her patients who has lost his mind and he's potentially going to get committed to asylum. So he flees her and he winds up as a drunk homeless person, unhoused person who's wandering through, you know, 1940s, Chicago winds up back at a carnival trying to get a job as a mentalist, but they don't want him. But they give him a job as a geek, which we discover is what happens to the unhoused alcoholics that they find, who they then entice with booze to engage in inhumane acts, acts, animal cruelty, animal cruelty. Just terrible things. Awful. And take advantage of their lack of power in society and addiction to force them to debase themselves. But right at the end, it turns out that the carnival he's wound up at is also the one that Colleen Gray has wound up at. 
and he's running loose trying to escape gone uh i think it's implied he's his in the in, in a delirious uh coming down from his alcoholism and she's the one who finds him and manages to calm him and there's a moment of grace right at the end of maybe it's all going to be okay and then the owner of the carnival and two of his guys just talk about oh i thought he was uh you know i thought he was just a chump but it turns out he actually was somebody who knew good night carl and then they just end the movie it was such a bizarre last beat very very odd but i don't know um it's also uh, to to me it's odd to end on a, a beat that walks back the twist that you you put in moments before for sure uh, so yeah either it was, whether it was the studio or haze moment. it yeah either way they, they pulled their punch right at the end which i think is is something we'll see a lot in the bleaker end of the 1940s noir films it reminded me a lot of the ending of the setup have you seen that one i think it was 1952 it's a boxer movie so i'm very excited for us to get to it in our boxing season and i will not tell you what happens but in a very broad sense it also lands in a really bleak place and then gives our main guy a moment of grace at the end and you're just sort of like this doesn't feel like it's been set up at all this feels like a very different movie right at the last five minutes so but outside of that ending do you agree with the does it feel like one of the bleaker entries of 1940s noir to you uh yeah it um if you if you take that ending off it is uh it is pretty damn bleak uh there's 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 just not it's just a downward spiral uh for for poor stan yeah, especially that that last twenty minutes of him, his house of cards completely falling apart. He loses his money, loses his girlfriend. Here, they're not married, right? No, they don't. They don't yeah. set that up. So loses his girlfriend, loses pretty much, almost gets is accused of murder. That's also not really clear if he kills. It it seems that he doesn't kill him. He does just hit him it, once, yeah. It, I, I could have gone. But it's also one of those things where they could have been suggested. I don't know. I, I also read it as he didn't kill him, but I was like, it could be that they're very, leaving it very ambiguous again. I, I think. Time. I think if he, my my take is if he kills him, it uh, uh, and you know, contrasting what these these versions are going to look like, if, it, if he kills him, it becomes much harder to buy her coming back to him at the end. That's true. That's very true. That's a very good point. So, so yeah, I think you're right. So he beats this guy up. He's, that's right, because he's also being hunted by him, right? That's part of the thing is yeah. his men, uh, the, the Marks, this gangster's men are going to be relentless in trying to hunt him down. So he just has to get out of town. He winds up with alcoholism. He winds up unhoused. He winds up drifting across the country. Uh, he is truly brought low. I, I think it is definitely short of death, one of the lowest points that I've seen a a main character be brought to in a noir. So I I would agree. It's, you know, it's, again, the goalposts have moved in the 2020s. And so if you were to put it up against a variety of movies from the last 20 years, maybe not the bleakest thing you've ever seen, but within that that context, I I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
there's one other thing that I wanted to touch on, which is there's an interesting strand present in this movie that's not in the other one of religious hucksterism, where there's an ongoing conversation where Tyrone Stan wants to, uh, as, as they keep putting it, wants to set up a tabernacle. And so essentially they're talking about him becoming a evangelist, like an early version of a big church, bring him in, do the snake act evangelist. And it's sort of implied that that's where the real money is. And it turns out, so the, I haven't read the book, but apparently the book that this both versions are based off of actually has a third part where Stan does precisely that. And that, all of his... That makes so much sense, right? too. And so all the spiritualism takes place within that context. So essentially, the that just gets condensed down to this one gangster character experiencing, trying to connect with a, a dead lover. But the... The book has him go full out, set up a church, bring people in, act like he can speak to the dead, ends up, and then ends up connecting with this guy and, and the rest of it happens. But it feels so, so prescient, right? That, and, and absolutely, you know, with the rise of radio, you were already starting to see these kinds of mass appeal evangelists. I think yeah. the recent Perry Mason re- reboot or whatever they're calling it, I think has a really good take on that 1930s radio evangelism and, and what that looked like. So it's one of those things where it was a problem then of, of people using this kind of human insight to, to swindle people. And it's only gotten worse. Uh, I'm also excited that this weekend sees the start of season two of the righteous gemstones, which I think kind of has I, some neo-noir tendencies and I think I have not a, seen it. So, oh, it's a blast. And I think it's a show that we'll, if we end up doing our Patreon and having TV shows on there, it's something I think we'll talk about because it's, it's really interesting. So I, 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 anyway, I just find a very fascinating aspect of this version of the movie that it is clearly interested in, but I think still rings true today. Well, well um, to, to further uh, expand on that, I think, I think that puts, into context, uh, the probably the biggest issue I have with both versions, both film versions of this, in that they that it feels like we have gotten the first two acts of a story that is then cut short mm. uh, and drawn out into feature length. But uh, knowing that the book has a full other act that takes this um, this hucksterism to its logical next step. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me and and it especially why it feels like it, and maybe it's just weird approaching a film where it feels so much in in two neatly divided mm-hmm. halves but it doesn't feel like there's a a first act and a third act it just feels like it's it's bisected neatly yeah no i i i definitely see that and i think it's also a good moment for us to turn our attention to the 2021 version yeah Step right up in the home, one of the unexplained mysteries of the universe. Is he man or beast? This creature has been examined by the foremost scientists and pronounced unequivocally a man. I am prepared to offer you folks one last chance to witness this supreme oddity. 
Where did it come from? They've gotten by the same lust and threat that got us all walking on this earth, but gone wrong somehow in maternal wounds. Stop fit for living. So this is going to sound a little familiar, but the new Nightmare Alley, released in 2021, was directed by Guillermo del Toro, written by him and Kim Morgan. It follows a handsome carny, here played by Bradley Cooper, who learns the secret code to mentalism and uses it to con his way to wealth and fortune. It also stars Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, and Rooney Mara as the women in Cooper's life. So let's just again start with uh, personal relationship to this movie. Obviously, we were both seeing it for the first time because it's a brand new release. Right. Yeah, I think it might be more interesting to talk about Del Toro and yeah. Cooper and some of the other stars here and, and how excited you may or may not have been coming into this. I am always excited for a Guillermo Del Toro film, even if the hype doesn't always totally pan out for me. Uh, I have I've certainly been a fan of his for quite a while. Uh, and I am I'm probably in the vast majority that still thinks Pan's Labyrinth is his best but I can't argue with that. Yeah. I, everything else has been good. Uh, and, and certainly has me excited for whatever he puts out. His imagination sure. is second to none. And, uh, and, and it does feel like a really logical pairing to me when, when you talk carnival noir and who should be behind it. Right. hundred uh, percent agree. I think I'm in the exact same boat as you. I pants labyrinth masterpiece. I've I'm a bit of a Crimson Peak apologist. I actually quite enjoy that movie. I know that one was not well received, but I think that might be my second favorite of his too. Okay, great. So I, I, I'm not surprised. There's a reason that we're friends, but <laughs> I yeah. Uh, uh, Pacific Rim, just a whole whole lot of fun. Maybe one of the funnest big budget blockbusters that that really just knows how to not take itself too seriously yeah pacific rim's got tons of virtues uh i love that shape of water is uh apparently a best picture winner (laughs) yeah again i think we'll i don't know i think this kind of ties in to certainly some stuff that i want to talk about i suspect you do as well with this um but one of the things i just wanted to kind of i found interesting i was doing some some prep for this speaking to the bisected nature of the film so they were filming in upstate New York and they started filming at the start of 2020 and they were planning on filming in order, but they had to delay the start of production. And then because of scheduling, they ended up having to switch it and they were going to film the second half first and then do the first half and all in upstate New York. They get done with the roughly the second half and then COVID hits and they stop production. 
and they stop production for six months and don't resume shooting until September. So from March to September, uh, they stop and then they resume and they have to move from Buffalo to Toronto to figure out the safety protocols. Apparently Del Toro kind of made up his own because nothing had really been set yet by anybody, but also apparently it worked because there wasn't, there weren't any outbreaks on set. So I have to assume they did it safely, but I do find it interesting. I, I would assume that there were at least some degree of rewrites just to accommodate the safety restrictions of COVID for that first half. And they've said that they also took that time to kind of reassess the movie and, and make some changes. So they definitely did do tweaks having between filming the second half and filming the first half, which I find interesting. I don't know, looking back on my reaction to the movie, I don't know that I can nothing that effect out. But but I'm sure I'm sure things were affected. I'd be interested to hear some commentary on what what decisions they did have to make, uh, what what changed because of it. I think I can speak for both of us that this podcast is a lament for physical media and the loss of director commentaries from <laughs> that that beautiful time from like 1998 till 2012 when they were just chock a block and you could you could get them any which way you wanted. I guess even laserdisc, but that's ah, neither here nor there. <laughs> So, uh, so that was just some interesting context I thought about the, the movie. But it also speaks to what you're saying about how it's so cleanly bisected that you've just really, got this first really half and second half. Now, I think one thing that is that is present in both of these uh, and uh, and I think works works even better here because of because of the production design associated with it, uh, goes to a, uh, a a bit of a theory that I've I've had with you know, use of use of carnivals in noir. I had pitched to Fred early on uh, a a potential carnival noir or something to that effect. I mean, there's definitely something there. And, there's some some good and, entries that you can pull together. But um, but oddly enough, so this this kind of inverts uh, this idea that that a carnival setting is often used in noir, whether it's the Hall of Mirrors and Lady from Shanghai or the the Ferris wheel in uh, in the third man or the the ending of House of Bamboo to um, to destabilize the main character. It is it is there to disorient. It's there to put them on alien territory. They are all of a sudden not on on as shaky of or not on as sturdy of ground as they previously thought. Whereas in both versions, uh, but particularly in Del Toro's the carnival is where Stan belongs, is where he is at home, he is comfortable there. And then when he is thrown into the art deco landscape of New York, he is increasingly ungrounded and out of his depth and and things start to come apart at the seams. I think that read is spot on and lines up neatly with my own reaction to the movie specifically the combination of the production design and the carnival, which was that felt like what Del Toro was excited about, right? Oh, I think so. I mean, the production design in general, the art deco is beautiful, but the carnival stuff, so that to me, the camera is just constantly shooting in this sort of wide roaming, wide lens roaming style taking in as much of the atmosphere as it possibly can. 
they've got Clifton Collins Jr. as a guitarist just for background detail. He pops up in a couple scenes, but he's not, you could easily cut that character, for instance, and the movie would function exactly the same. But it, it, to me, it feels so clear that Del Toro just is in love with this world and its mysteries and freaks. And it, it, this, it, to me, it feels like the part of the movie most expanded in comparison to the 1947 version. He couldn't resist the, the baby in the jar. Oh, yeah. It's a great, yeah. it's a great prop. It is. And I love, I love how it comes back at the end, too. Yeah, he um, he reveled in that that carnival, and I think that's uh, that's something where where the effect of it can be debated a bit. Because t- to me, I thought that the second half of the film landed better. I think he may have he may have dwelt a bit too long without as much purpose in the carnival, uh, and uh, and I guess you know worse things than having your movie get tighter and 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 better as it moves along uh not a bad thing at all no i i agree i felt i found that when stan leaves was the moment where i went oh okay now he's got an objective that we're kind of moving towards and yeah. this might be a good we can kind of switch back over to to stan and, and bradley cooper here. and i think bradley cooper does fine work at the especially i thought the emphasis on accents was very interesting here and really making it lived in and actually this kind of ties back to one of the things I wanted to point out with the production design it is a movie that is very well researched but you can it's very it tries very hard to show you that research I think or you know it's got the accents and using that to very clearly mark where he's at and where he's from and who he's trying to be. It's got the series of radio and news broadcasts to really ground you as to when we are. And especially the broadcast I found interesting because the original doesn't feel compelled to do it. And then it's not a good or bad thing. It's just such an interesting aspect of one is a period piece and one isn't, right? And right. one can just really same say- story. The same story, but one can be like, this is the moment that we're living in, so we don't have to tell you anything. And the other one goes, I have to educate you, the audience, about all of this stuff. Um, and I, I don't think it's like a wrong choice or anything. It's just, it's just sort of very interesting to, no, that's to a, see that's between an those interesting, two. Interesting call out for sure. Uh, and, and, and a choice that you, you do have to make to some extent. Um, you, you've got um, to reorient your audience instead of it being a contemporary piece as, as it was in, in 47. Is there any other production design that you want to touch on? Uh, I think that uh, I, I think that we hit on the main. It's really it's the compare and contrast. I I loved how much Del Toro leaned into that Art Deco design yes. of the the second half. It was gorgeously done. Um, some some of the best best set design that he's done. Period. For sure. Although I think this might be my final point for for this production on its own is that. Del Toro's body of work, I feel like has sort of trended towards this emphasis on production design where it loses just a little feeling of grounding for me, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it definitely is something that I've noticed looking back to Pan's Labyrinth. Wonderful production design, but it still very clearly takes place in the real world and there's dirt and tree, you know, mulch and 
there's decay around and it's a very real place That's whereas by the i did time not get, i didn't pick up on it being in new york specifically it could have been any any otherworldly uh place of the of the late 40s uh whereas where whereas uh, the 1948 version, you get you get some nice little shots of him escaping down State Street with the right. Chicago theater in the background. Exactly. Yeah, no, I just find it interesting. You know, I think his last few films, Crimson Peak, Shape of Water, and now this have all trended in that direction more and more of feeling like very contained, immaculately designed worlds, which are beautiful. 100% beautiful. The, his production team does great work but it has definitely been a shift that i have felt over his last few movies yeah no you're you're spot on he should he should do a bioshock movie i feel like that's his aesthetic oh that's, yeah that would have been <laughs> that would be perfect. spot on um so yeah no i think you're you're right let's just get into compare and contrast right um i mean i um, think just briefly the performances, performances were all very sure. good from the the new one I just want to shout out David Strathern. I think his performance as Pete is great. And he makes yeah. a lot of a very limited amount of screen time. Um, he he does tremendously. Uh, and and uh, so does Richard Jenkins, I think, in, mm. a, um, in a, a very different capacity. But it was nice to see someone as reliable and always welcome as Richard Jenkins getting to show a bit of menace, mm. mm-hmm. which I really appreciated. Um, and um, and and I think that he's certainly a, a part of the reason that the back half of the film lands well because that that portion with Ezra Grindel feels a feels a bit too rushed in the nineteen forty eight version mm, for sure for sure. All right, so thinking about these two movies together now, and since we've already talked so much about the production design, I, I've, I mean, one of the basic differences here is that one's black and white and one's color. Now, obviously, part of that is not so much a choice in the 1947's version uh, part as it is just a financial necessity, but it is still impactful in different ways, I think. I, I certainly think there's one there's one shot that I love in the 1947 version where... Um, where when we first are in uh, in Dr. Ritter's office and and the pattern on the ceiling is being reflected down onto Stan and it looks like he's behind bars. It's just this mm-hmm. cross-hatched pattern that is shining down. Um, and it's such a great example of, of use of the black and white cinematography and and foreshadowing how over his head he already is even mm-hmm. as he walks right into that office the first time mm-hmm. um he's no longer in the world that he feels comfortable in uh and and he hasn't learned the rules here yet yes and meanwhile i think the 2021 version makes very good use of his color especially yellow i think yellow is sort of the main recurring sickly color you see it with enoch and especially around the the geek pit and William Defoe's corner, which also just the <laughs> the wonderful character actors who populate Del Toro's movie, uh, just popping up everywhere, like him, and you know, it's it's just a constant uh, carousel of, of familiar and fun faces. But William Defoe's little pocket is this sort of sickly yellow color at all times, 
and sort of the start of the the corruption and then by the time we make it to the the jump in the second half and the art deco this gold this gold seam keeps recurring and it again becomes this recurring image i think of this sickly corrupting influence of of wealth and power and its its desire yeah um yeah he certainly uses um yellow gold very very memorably and i uh, i think uh in the well i can, honestly every 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 color choice the snow um uh, at the end and in the climax with grindle is um is just such a a break from everything we've seen before that it really heightens the the alienness of that scene uh that that for the first time they're back out after after spending whatever uh 45 minutes an hour of the movie it closed up indoors we're back outside again and uh and it's nothing like the carnival it's it's cold mm-hmm. it's uh the garden is is covered in white and then all of a sudden the violence just explodes in there and i think it's certainly memorable yes for sure and i think that's the violence is kind of takes us to the haze code of it all right in that this is the 2021 version definitely enjoys being a lot more explicit about elements that are implied in the original, whether that's the sexual relationship between Stan and the stage magician here played by Tony Collette or the violence at the end where here now Stan nearly beats this man to death and maybe does beat him to death. It seems pretty, and then seems, definitely drives pre- over another guy. Seems and pretty beaten to death by the end. Rips his face off. Uh, what's his name from Mindhunter? David Fincher's favorite actor, uh, Holt McCallany. 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 Probably butchering that last name, but there's definitely some, some brutal murders there at the end. And even the details of Grindel's relationship with this, you know, in the, in the original, just his college sweetheart, but here it's one in a line of women that he's had, he's convinced to have backroom abortions and it got her killed. It's all much more, much more explicit here. So I'm very curious how that, that landed for you. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think it's pretty clear that, uh, that the 1947 version could not have gotten away with, uh, yeah. with a bathtub hand job. <laughs> um, or the, or... the close-up of a chicken's neck getting bitten into. No, but you know, sometimes I, yeah. I, I thought there was more simmering chemistry between Tyrone Power and Joan Blondell than, than there was between Cooper and Tony Collette. Uh, and honestly, I think poor Tony Collette's the one who comes across getting most underserved by uh, by Del Toro's adaptation, despite the longer length of of the carnival section. Um, yeah, well, maybe- I think a lot of the pathos of that character gets shifted over to Pete in this version. Here, yeah. Pete gets to flesh out. You know, the original version, their shared history is very much about her and how she is risen and fallen whereas here it almost sounds like pete used to be the stage musician and she was the assistant and they had to flip because of yeah. his alcoholism was my read of the 2021 version i hadn't i hadn't thought about it that way but that makes total sense with how del toro stages it so um, no i totally agree that it, it shifts the shifts the focus and and you know i mean tony collette's tony collette so she's gonna do great no matter what but right always always good to have her in but it's it's weird that that 
um, she goes from from Joan Blondell being the the most memorable of the of the ladies in in the uh, 1947 to uh, to her having that emphasis kind of taken away. And yeah, um, um, David Strathairn does rise to the occasion and and steals that whole first act. So good, so good. Uh, Ro- Rooney Mara gets served uh, pretty well, I think, comparatively. I uh, she, she, she she's certainly more. given a lot of a lot of screen time, and she, you feel bad for her. You feel very bad for her. Uh, yeah. She gets more. She has more of an arc. She, you know, the the whole fleshed out bit with the machine. Where now Stan invents it. The the new version of her electrical girl routine, where it's a big machine that gets turned. The 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 production of it all so she definitely served more but i felt that honestly and she's a great actress obviously but i just felt the same about both characters which was they land more on the functional than on the character side you know what i mean they're both very important to the plot in terms and to stan's rise and fall and yeah representing what he loses as opposed to you know again i think here there's a lot more agency but it's just sort of you know, and Stan's the main character, right? Like at the end of the day, that is right. what it is. Uh, and and she she has to act as the as as the only moral strain of this entire tale. Uh, yeah. There's she's got got to be his counter in that regard, uh, but she has to be the only person that the audience is actually rooting for to make it out okay. <laughs> You know, actually, one thing I did find interesting about this version with Tony Collette, thinking back on it, is, and we can, this leads, I think, to another point that, that we're going to talk about, but she brings up the spiritualism side of things and then reiterates it when they, when the carnies stop in to say hello in the second half of don't do it, you're, you know, you're going to get, this is a bad road you're going down. In the 1947 version, the spiritualism angle to me read more as just his stands invention and his decision to go down once he's in Chicago and he's, he's has success and he's, and he's sort of going, where can I take this from here? I know I'm not just going to read your mind. I'm going to start talking to the dead because it went over really well. Whereas here it's set up from the beginning that that is something we did and it was a mistake and you shouldn't do it. And then Stan yeah, goes and does it. The spook show is established early on. I, again, with the telegraphing, it's a line yeah. that you're not supposed to cross. And of course, once that's, that line is drawn, you know it's a matter of time before Stan decides to cross it. I'm, I'm colored, I guess, by having by having seen the Del Toro version first, but more so, even more so than the than the not exactly subtle 1947 version. Uh, Del, Del Toro sets up exactly where things are going and there are there are no surprises it is and and you know what it's it's better for it i'm i'm i was happy when the end was exactly what i thought the end was going to be for sure i think that's one of the the last things i really wanted i wanted to talk about here was how much del toro's version is interested in these very clear setups and payoffs and i think that's one of the reasons that the Carnival section takes so much longer is because it is so much more about, you know, William Defoe really walking you through how you make a geek so that when um, Tim Blake Nelson appears <laughs> at the end of the movie, all of a sudden. Always happy to have him. 
always great to see him. He is the... Uh, Except when he's uh, offering you a job biting chicken heads. It's going to be temporary. Yeah. So yeah, but that's the thing is that you, as soon as you get that speech from William Defoe, you're like, oh, we're going to mirror this at the end. Or like you said, with the spook show of it all, and that gets very clearly said again and again, it's all about the setups and payoffs and doing the work in advance. Whereas the, and I think, you know, and like I said, I think there's some, some strengths to that in the fatalism and our keynote to me, the, this version, I think this sort of gets at the key, one of the key differences is that this version is about Stan realizing that this is who he was meant to be. And that this is the broken person he's always been. Whereas the 1947 version is a much more traditional rise and fall where, you know, it's an Icarus story. You flew too close to the sun and you got burned for it. And it's a, it's a moral story, right? Of if you just stayed with the mentalism, you would have been fine. You'd already compromised yourself a little bit, but not too much. But it's when you got extra greedy that, that it, it all falls apart. Whereas here, the whole point of the movie to me is that last line where he just laughs maniacally and goes, and he's, it's something to the effect of, I've been preparing for this my entire life and just laughs and laughs. And to me, it, it became very good. It was all a very bleak joke of this broken man thinking that he can fix himself and finally coming to grips with the fact that he can't and that this is what he deserves. It was the moment where I kind of, the movie finally made sense to me. Yeah, that, and that sets it apart so much from, I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the the line in the 1947 version uh, about flying too close to the sun or going to, um, you know, reach too high uh, that, that they utter at the very end because uh, th- because that kind of pins the the classist message mm-hmm. of of the nineteen forty seven version that's very much on the mind of of noirs being made then that this is this is this is someone that um, that that tried to rise above his station mm-hmm. uh, and and look what happened and and that becomes the uh, the the cautionary tale that uh that you know is is being told tongue-in-cheek but uh but still is very much on the mind of that that particular film whereas that's not the point of this right so i totally agree and and i think that also gets at the other i think core difference between these two movies is their approach to stan himself in that you know like mentioned earlier to me the 1947 stan feels like that that striver he's ambitious and we're watching him slowly corrupt himself over time. Whereas the 2021 version is a man who's trying to almost run from the truth of himself, which is that he is a terrible person. You know, one of the interesting differences is this different backstory, right? Where the 1947 version, he is an orphan. And that's kind of all we really get. And that he he's raised in some kind of religious orphanage. And so he's got, and that sort of plays into his religious hucksterism and his background there whereas here stan had an abusive hateful father that he killed and left and burned alive not burned alive but burned the body and then he's sort of denying that about himself but it also kind of puts him in a weird spot where he just 
you know, he wanders into the circus and he kind of wanders into getting a job. And then he, wa- he wanders through a bunch of the early beats because he is, he is sort of running from himself. And the, the, the movie is just about him, uh, to me at least again, is him coming to that full circle moment of, this is who I've been. I am a terrible person. I deserve this. And yeah, I think that's, and, a, that's a great read of it. Yeah. So it just puts him a little bit more on the back foot where he is more reactive Whereas, again, whereas the 1947 stand is like, I want power and I'm going to do what I got to do to get there. One thing I would love to get your thoughts on here, too, like with the original, is the poisoning of Pete and your read of that. Because it was just a little muddled for me. I think it's just me. I think I just missed something. But, you know, we set up that William Defoe has two kinds of bottles. And he's, again, one of those very clear setups and payoffs of you want to drink this, you don't want to drink that. And then Stan comes in the night, he drops the money, he grabs him from a box. Was your read that he knew that he was grabbing the poison and he was going to kill Pete to get the book of code? Or was it an accident? Um, I I do think that it was purposeful. Okay. Uh, but I think that Stan himself if I can really read into it, I think Stan is also justifying this as an act of mercy. Yes. For, I... for a man who, who uh, is, is in a bad state. I, I, I wouldn't go along with that. I, I definitely think he's conflicted about it, but I was, I was also leaning towards it being him purposely doing this. But again, I think that very interestingly changes the character dynamic where, where again, it just sort of flattens the arc. Whereas the 1947 one, it's an accidental murder, this manslaughter on his way towards his full fall from grace. Whereas here, it's just a reiteration of as, as Kate Blanchett gets into of his, you know, original sin of killing his father. And he's just sort of repeating the same thing because he can't bring himself to admit it. Well, he'll, he'll kill every older man in his life <laughs> he is a menace to the geriatrics of 1940s america yes he is uh, we haven't talked about kate blanchett at all no which is i suppose uh, a major omission from us because she's definitely the the meatiest of the female roles i mean still definitely the femme fatale who comes in i actually would love to get your take on why does she do it? What is your read on why she does it? Uh, that is, um, I, I, I don't think that that is properly uh, delved into for, for, for me. I think that, um, I, I think that she derives a certain amusement from it. Uh, but I don't know that I, I don't know that I, I pulled out anything deeper than, than this is something like she, as she toys with, with him during the act that this is anything more than a, a, a way to pass the time. And, and, and she is unlike Stan, she is at home in this yes. environment. She yes. is very comfortable here. She's as comfortable here as he was in the carnival. Uh, so she's always had the upper hand in that entire dynamic. I would definitely agree with that. I, I, again, it was one of those things where that was 
my takeaway, but it was played ambiguously enough that I wanted to make sure that I hadn't missed something. And, and again, I think also because of the order that I watched them, when in the 1947 one, she very clearly robs him. I went, did I miss that in the 2021 version that she actually did need the money? But I'm, I'm glad to know that, that I was taking in the whole movie and that it was in fact a case where she just, because uh, I, I think both of them do play with this idea of takes one to know one, right? That they are, they are both sharks, but she is the bigger shark. And, and I think maybe that also gets at the, the, if you could call it a morality of the movie, that she is the bigger shark because she's not doing it for money or power or, or trappings. She is doing it just to do it, right? She is the purest incarnation of this instinct in both of them. And, uh, and, and Blanchett does sell that well. And I don't know oh. why he, uh, what, what, she needs to do more noir. Yes, 100% uh, agree. Such a natural fit in there. And, uh, and, and yes, uh, I, I, I understand why she's second build on, uh, on any of the promotional materials, even though, even though going away from the movie, um, Rooney Mara clearly has much more screen time than, than she does. Uh, but Blanchett does leave an impression. 100%. And I think also visually, she is a perfect fit for the Art Deco production design. Just her sharp angles and aquiline beauty just completely complement the offices that she inhabits in this set that, she, that is built around her and like you said is is so at probably, home here probably like like no one else currently working could do that I, I i can't think of another actress who would um who would drop in there as seamlessly as she does for sure uh all right well i think that exhausts all of our many, many talking points we weren't sure how long this was going to go and it seems to have gone it's pretty long but that's good an hour. a lot to talk about yeah so to wrap up uh what are your takeaways from from these two movies? You know, what, how, since they're both new to you, how do you feel about them in the canon? How do you feel, do you, do you revisit them? What, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, um, I would say that I enjoyed without loving both of them. Um, and, and that mostly comes down to my, my uh, feelings on the, the general plotting um, and how that, how that spaces out. However, I, I live for this kind of bleakness in noir and, um, and, and I, I knew right from early on in del Toro's film, when I saw exactly what payoffs they were setting up that I, I was on board for that. And I, uh, and, and despite the paths that both movies take to get there, uh, that's what I want out of my noir. So I, I, I did enjoy them both. And, uh, uh, not necessarily one more than another uh probably lean slightly toward del toro's version but hmm. they both have their strengths i'm pretty close to you i also enjoyed both didn't fully love either but they each have a lot to recommend them the i think i leaned a little bit more towards the 47 version just because i enjoyed the more forceful approach but i also feel like and I think also the 47 version, again, gives me that that warm coat feeling of just 
aspects of noir that I, that I love most in its approach to the human condition. But I also feel like I'm more likely to revisit the del Toro version in part because it is so much more about that final moment. And I'm really curious what I would get out of it, watching it a second time, knowing exactly for me what's what's on its mind. Whereas the the 47 one, you know, I could see just sort of tossing it on as I was doing something, but I don't know that I'd I didn't feel motivated to fully engage with it again. Like I, I think I might get something new and, and interesting out of the del Toro version on a second watch. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, so I'd say a good first episode. Good first episode, definitely both worth the watch. I'd say uh, at this point, you've listened to us talk about both movies in a fair amount of detail, but so hopefully <laughs> you already watched them, but if you hadn't, give them a spin. Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at CelluloidDirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle CelluloidDirt. For our next episode, we'll be busting into some hard-boiled home invasions, taking Charlie McDowell's 2022 have-and-have-nots contained thriller, Windfall, and swearing off against William Wyler's 1955 Criminals vs. Suburbanites hostage drama and one of Bogart's last performances, The Desperate Hours. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>